From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Texas can seem like its own little universe, although there's nothing really little about Texas, at least if you talk to Texans. <laughs> uh, it also is, has an outsized spot in our political universe, at least for the time being, because it has the first primaries coming up in the 2018 midterms. We're going to talk about Texas's midterm madness, setting that off, and joining me is Bridget Bowman, our senior political reporter who wrote a very nice story about the coming March 6th primary. That's less than a month. Bridget, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. So like a a couple of things about Texas. Texas uh, has has really played an outsized, um, you know, role in our political world, in our political history. It's produced two presidents uh, who were born in Texas, Lyndon Baines Johnson and Dwight Eisenhower. Two more presidents who were not born in Texas but made Texas their home later, George Bush and George W. Bush became president. It's had three speakers of the House, Jack Garner, who went on to become vice president, Sam Rayburn, arguably the most powerful speaker in history, and Jim Wright, and also Lyndon Johnson. Before he came, became president and vice president, he was arguably the most effective majority leader in the Senate. So it has this big place. It's growing massively. Every time, it's like Florida, every time you visit, it's a different place. <laughs> and the politics are really kind of interesting, and that's what you explored uh, in, in your story recently. That's right. So I looked specifically at House primaries. So there are lots and lots of candidates running in a number of races in Texas. So and, and we have 34 members of the House who just hail from Texas. Yes, huge state. And a number of open seats, too, especially on the Republican side. Just for some context, as you mentioned, the primary is March 6th. But Texas is also one of a handful of states that has a runoff provision. So if no candidate gets the majority of votes in a primary, then they head to a runoff on May 20th. 22nd. So even though the primaries are March 6th, for a lot of these races that have several candidates, these are pro- contests are probably going to continue for a couple months after that. Let's start uh, like actually at the top. So Donald Trump won Texas. Not, not a big surprise. Republicans mm-hmm. have been winning in Texas uh, for a couple of generations now. It used to be a Democratic stronghold, as you know, as evidenced by people like Lyndon Johnson and and uh, and Sam Rayburn, but then we saw a, a, a movement toward becoming a, a, an almost exclusively uh, Republican state at the statewide level. However, Donald Trump won with uh, a relatively underwhelming number in 2016. Yeah, he won uh, Texas by nine points, and that was the first time in 20 years that a Republican had won Texas by less than 10 points. So that is why some Democrats are looking at Texas a little optimistically, though they've been saying for several cycles that it's kind of shifting. So we'll see if that shift starts to happen this cycle or not, especially with the Senate race there, too. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz is up for re-election and Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who's from El Paso, is is running against him and is raising a lot of money. Um, But he still has it's as we mentioned, Texas is a huge state and he has a lot of work to do to make sure that people know who he is. Now, you uh, and and your colleague, Simone Pathé, a frequent guest also of of Mm -hmm. political theater, but you, you looked over the fundraising numbers for the uh, uh, last quarter for, of, of 2017. What did you find, specifically in that Senate race? We'll get to the House races soon. But, but the, the, the race that's shaping up to be a Cruz-O'Rourke showdown in November. Sure. Uh, so Congressman O'Rourke raised $2.4 million, uh, which is also notable because he's not accepting any PAC money. 
um, in his race. So he actually outraised Senator Cruz in the most recent fundraising quarter. Cruz raked in $1.9 million. Congressman O'Rourke had raised outraised Cruz as well in a previous fundraising quarter last year. Um, so he's arguing that he is, you know, has a lot of momentum behind his campaign. Uh, he actually announced his fundraising total during a 24-hour Facebook live stream of his kind of traveling on the campaign trail. Uh, we just got the numbers in for the last quarter completed that ended the last day of December. Uh, you all raised $2.4 million. So he's really trying to travel throughout the state and and pick up a lot of these small dollar donations, too, to kind of fuel his campaign. And this is a little weird, too, because Cruz, you know, arguably has has a big profile, not just because of his role in the Senate, but because he ran for president in 2016. He was Donald Trump's closest rival in the for the Republican nomination. Uh, he didn't make a lot of friends in Cleveland when he declined to explicitly endorse Trump on the floor of the, of the convention. But he um, he he really shouldn't have that much trouble raising money, theoretically. That's right. Yeah, it is. It is notable. This is happening in a lot of House races, too, where Democratic challengers are out raising sitting members of Congress. Incumbents have sort of natural advantages when it comes to fundraising. Like you said, having kind of that base of support, raising money before. Um, what it seems to show kind of across the map is a lot of enthusiasm on the Democratic side, which is something we've been seeing throughout 2017 and some of the special elections and um, in a lot of these fundraising numbers, too. So let's talk a little bit about some of these House races. And, and I mean, when you have a presidential election, that obviously kind of takes over. When you have a, a statewide election, like a Senate election, especially for somebody uh, as prominent as Cruz, I mean, that can suck a lot of oxygen, too. But, I mean, just how many races are we looking at that are competitive? Because Democrats, I mean, they, they smell blood. You know, they mm-hmm. think that they can get the majority in November. Um, is is How many seats do you think that they are looking at or how many are they targeting, the, you know, to, to flip? So Democrats are targeting a handful of Republican-held seats, but they're really focusing on three of them. Uh, the first is Texas 23, which is held by Congressman Will Hurd, former CIA officer. Uh, this is a kind of consistently swing district. Um, Clinton won it by, I think, about four points. So this is something that Democrats were expecting to target anyway. And this and this district is also just massive. Yes. Right? I mean, it, it's the biggest district that's not an entire state like mm-hmm. Alaska. Right. Uh, and, and it stretches along the border. I mean, it has a lot of suburban San Antonio, but it's just gigantic. It, it stretches from El, the El Paso suburbs all the way along the border and into San Antonio. It's huge. That's right. And there are a number of Democrats running in the primary in this district. Uh, strategists and, and uh, different operatives that I've talked to have pointed out two candidates uh, that they think are the strongest. Uh, that's former prosecutor Jay Hewlings. We know what our families need. And it's not fear or walls. It's education and jobs. He has ties to the Castro brothers from, We're from San Antonio. Right. That's right. right. Um, he's been endorsed by the Bold Pack, which is the political arm of the Hispanic Caucus in Congress. Um, he's also raised a lot of money. Uh, the other candidate is Gina Ortiz Jones. She's a former Air Force intelligence officer. While I fought in Iraq, my mother was fighting a different battle here at home. She'd been diagnosed with cancer. I'm Gina Ortiz Jones. I'm a veteran, and I'm running for Congress because every mother, Every family, every child deserves health care that protects them like you protected my mom. 
She has been endorsed by Emily's List uh, as well. So you kind of see different groups taking sides in some of these primaries. The DCCC has been kind of hesitant to publicly play in some of these primaries, but Hewlings has gotten support from some leaders financially. So kind of signaling that he might be the more leadership choice in this primary. Hurd's kind of an interesting character. I mean, he, he this is his he's in his second term. He doesn't win by a lot, but he has mm-hmm. won. Uh, um, late, and he uh, he actually over the this past weekend pushed back a little bit on some of Donald Trump's claims about this House Intelligence Committee memo that had been released that saying that it had vindicated, you know, the the president. I mean, he heard who is it as you mentioned is this former CIA officer uh, said that that wasn't they weren't necessarily connected. DOJ and FBI should continue doing the job. I don't believe this is an attack on Bob Mueller. I don't believe this is an attack on the men and women in the FBI. I've served shoulder to shoulder with them and they are hardworking folks that, that keep us safe. How much of a balancing act does he have in appealing to Republicans who may like Donald Trump and still trying to get some of those swing voters in his 23rd uh, congressional district. Right. It is quite a tough balancing act. And this district, too, is vast majority Hispanic population. So immigration is expected to be a big issue here as well. Um, So how is he? It's going to be really interesting to see how he navigates the DACA negotiations that are going on right now. Uh, He has his own bill uh, to address this issue. So he does. He is one of those Republicans that has to walk that line and has to not, like you said, not alienate other Republicans in the district, but also get some people who might have voted for Clinton as well. So what are the you mentioned there are a couple of other seats that the, the Democrats feel uh, pretty saucy about, uh, if you will. <laughs> uh, let, let's uh, let's move on uh, because they they they're in other parts of this massive state. Right. So the two other seats that Democrats are are fairly optimistic about are Texas seven, which is represented by a Republican John Culberson. That's near Houston. And Texas 32, which is represented by Pete Sessions, and that's closer to Dallas. Uh, These are Democratic targets since Clinton won them by a narrow margin, but she still did win those districts. Um, These are also suburban districts. They are kind of representative of other emerging targets that we see throughout the map, like in California, Florida, Pennsylvania, places that are focused in the suburbs that Clinton won, but that are also in expensive media markets. So it'll be interesting to see as the cycle moves forward, where are Democrats directing their money? Do they see more more of a chance in these Texas districts that are traditionally Republican? And are they going to spend there or do they see their money uh, being more useful elsewhere? One of the points that you made in your story about this is that there are so many Democrats interested in these two seats, the Dallas-based uh, seat that Sessions represents and the Houston-based seat, uh, Houston suburban seat that John Culberson represents, that they may end up with a candidate who may be a little too liberal for what could be what's really considered more of a swing district or even a lean Republican district. How much of a danger is that? That is, there is definitely that possibility, not only here, but in other crowded races across the country. Um, one strategist pointed out that that's a particular challenge in maybe Texas 7, the Houston seat with Culverson. And um, there's a candidate there named, named Laura Moser who started this text messaging app to try and energize the resistance. There's a concern that she might be too left-leaning. Uh, I think where you'll see that uh, maybe people be more aggressive about backing certain candidates to make sure they get through the general election is in the runoff. So whoever, whatever two candidates make the runoff in this seat, we might see more money pouring in to boost one candidate over another to make sure they get someone who they think is more viable in the general election. And Culberson uh, has, has been sort of identified as the, I mean, there, there's always one member who seems to be caught kind of unaware, uh, you know, doesn't have maybe a modern campaign apparatus, doesn't take his fundraising or her, or her fundraising seriously enough. 
Um, and, and, it, and it's sort of a surprise. Is it far enough out, though, that Culberson can kind of redirect and, and get sort of in his act together uh, to head off what could be a, a very viable threat? Potentially. So he did step up his fundraising in the most recent quarter. But prior to that, you're right, he had been raising lower amounts of money. And these Democratic candidates are raising a lot. There's one candidate named Alex Triantafilis. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He goes by Alex T on the campaign trail. He so far has raised almost a million dollars just as one Democratic challenger. Um, That's so, a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. Um, other candidates raised 700000 $600,000 in that race, too. Just one race. So it'll be interesting to see if Culberson keeps stepping it up now that he sees that these Democrats are raising a lot of money, but they also have to spend that money in the primary as well. Now, Sessions is a different story. I mean, he, he's the Rules Committee chairman in the House, which mm-hmm. is kind of an extension of leadership. He, he has a tough task. The, the, des- the district has been kind of trending away from Republicans for a while with suburban growth and Hispanic growth. Um, and Democrats have felt good about targeting him in the past, but he's always managed to, to get his, his act together and, and win. Um, how much of a threat is he really under, particularly if he is up against uh, a, a more liberal Democrat in a in this swing district? So here, um, Democrats see a number of candidates that would be strong in the in the general election. Uh, they don't really see the same problem that maybe could be in the seventh. Mm-hmm. However, uh, some of the candidates have ties to the Clinton to um, the Clinton campaign, the Obama administration, and Republicans say that could be a real liability in some of these races. Democrats say. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, so we'll have to see which of them comes out of the primary, too. And once you get past that, I mean, there, we're paying attention to, to Texas so much uh, because there are a lot of familiar faces who are, are retiring mm-hmm. or resigning or, or you know, won't be back in the next Congress. Uh, Jeb Henserling is the chairman of the Financial Services Committee. He's retiring. Uh, um, Blake Farenthold, who, has, who was elected in 2010, is, is leaving at the end of the Congress uh, uh, under sort of an ethical cloud. Um, you know, the, the, um, Joe Barton, uh, who was the former chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, he's retiring after this sort of embarrassing sexting kind of thing got out in the public. But th- none of these seats are going to necessarily flip, right? I mean, these, that would be the most extreme case of, of them turning over to, like, the, the other party. That's right. Most of these seats, um, Nathan Gonzalez from Inside Elections, who does our race ratings at Roll Call, rates all of these open seats on the Republican side as solid Republicans. So they're not expected to flip. So the real fight are, is in the primary in these races. Um, whoever comes out of the either primary in March or the runoff in May is likely to be a member of Congress. And here again, we see lots of crowded fields. There's one seat uh, in the 21st District. Former Congressman Lamar Smith is retiring, uh, has 18 candidates, which is a lot. So there's definitely going to be a runoff there. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. So we're talking about how many retirements or people who are leaving seats Mm -hmm. in in Texas out of the 34. There are, I think, six open seats now on the Republican side. Um, Five of them have very competitive primaries. uh, So those will be really interesting contests to watch for sure. All right. Well, um, one thing that we know for sure, we don't know like how each party is going to do, but we do know that we seem to be looking at a number of new faces uh, coming into 2018. That's and, right. And beyond that, too, in, 20, in 2020 and 2022, Texas always seems to gain a lot of seats. So for, <laughs> for the people who run this year or, or in the next cycle, there's always going to be four or five more seats, it seems, in Texas. <laughs> Texas will definitely be be interesting to watch for sure. 
Bridget, thanks so much for uh, coming on Political Theater. Uh, it's always a pleasure to to get the rundown on these kind of races. And this is just one state. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. Please also take a little time and rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, including Bridget's awesome Texas primary story, visit RollCall.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter at CQNow and at RollCall. Thanks for listening. <laughs>